0: If you're looking for one of the most beautiful and playable custom acoustics on the planet, look no further than Ed Rice at Towier Guitars. Ed is a true artist, transforming exotic woods into magnificent, sweet-sounding instruments. Go to toeearguitars.us, that's T-O-I-R-G-U-I-T-A-R-S dot U-S, and contact Ed today.
1: Hey everybody, Brad and I want to say thank you for listening and thank you for
0: the support. Please continue to listen and share this podcast on all platforms that you can. And if you'd like to support us monthly, we're set up now where you can go to anchorfm Recording, hit the support button, 99 cents, 499 or 9.99 per month. Any amount would be greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. Top Hill Recording Podcast, Episode 50. What's going on, Neil? Big 5-0, huh? Yeah. Wow, man.
1: All Half right. a century. Yeah, yeah it's hard a, to believe. We're getting there.
0: Just keep chugging along. Yeah. Sweet we got enough. a <laughs> got a great, great guest tonight. We've got Fab Grassi with us. Did I pronounce your name right, Fab? Yes. Absolutely.
2: Well, thank, thanks. Thanks yeah. for
0: joining us well, tonight. Here,
1: here's what happened for Ritzio. He got scared of the T Z. Yeah. And I, was like, no, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say <laughs> Fabrizio. <for> <laughs>
0: I think you did it perfectly. You'll do that again. Yeah,
3: yeah dude. Was that good for pizza?
2: Yeah, you you sounded Italian.
3: Man. Oh, All
1: right, I got a little bit in my blood, man. <laughs> I'm just to know. That's it, now, man. <laughs> it's in the blood for sure.
0: So Fab, we're going to drink a little bit of Jefferson's bourbon tonight while we're talking to you. Yeah, I have
2: some for me too, man. Yes, I already sir. Already told you my problem, but you know,
0: please go ahead. <laughs> well, Fab, I got a good story
1: about uh, my Italian heritage. My mother, well, let me. Say, I guess my great grandmother uh, was, was was a De George, De Giorgio, and then De George, and then my mom's mother.
0: De Giorgio's is a pizza, isn't
1: it? It is. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, that's actually
4: DiGiorno. Giorno. Oh, okay. Giorno. <laughs> there you go. There you go. De Giorno. So, uh, which for,
3: still is not a pizza, but anything. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I grew up.
1: Being told I was, you know, my mom was super Italian, and uh, her mother was was super Italian, and then you know we're in the we're in the times of technology and and the twenty three and Me's and all that. So she got her genealogy back and found out she's actually like more German or French than she is Italian. I think it broke her heart. Oh, wow. I think she felt lied to her entire life after she found that out.
0: Hey, <laughs> so what was her Italian percentage? I, like three. No, I'm just oh. kidding. No, it was,
1: <laughs> I don't remember 100%. It was like 20s or 30s, but she was always...
0: That's still pretty high. It's yeah. pretty
1: high, but it was not as high as something else. And I just, it, we were all kind of shocked because, yeah. oh my gosh, she still makes some of the most unbelievable spaghetti from scratch in the world. So I'll give her a little notch up on that.
0: <laughs> I haven't done that yet. I i don't know about just, you know, putting my DNA out there in the world like that.
1: There's too many ways to go to prison. <laughs> I'm not doing it, man.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, cheers, Neil. Cheers, cheers, cheers for Fab.
1: Bottoms up. Yes, sir.
0: And we'll start the podcast, Fab. Why don't you go back for us and and tell our listeners about your early life in uh, in music, when you first remember music, and at what point did you realize that music was something that was going to be a big part of your life? Uh.
2: Well, it's a it's a long story, but I'll try to give you the um, the remix version, radio edit, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, so we can squeeze so we can squeeze it in. Well, basically, I was born and raised in Milan, Italy, and uh, back then, I mean, Italy is always very music, musical, and very artistic uh, country, but it was definitely not a rock and roll place, uh, no whatsoever um For me, uh, my, in my teens, to get a hold of rock records and stuff, I used to go every Saturdays afternoon to the record store of choice, and they would, you know, educate me on you know new releases and all of that. And honestly, I miss those days because those guys running music stores back then, they knew what they were doing. There was like, you know, it was just a totally different experience when mm-hmm. somebody tells you something and you just go and just put on the headphones and you listen to it. That was great. Mm-hmm. Well, anyways, that happens during my teens, but uh, on. Uh, uh, around my house, my mom used to play music all the time, but uh, it was more, I guess, Italian music and the radio. Funny enough, no rock and roll on the radio, but a lot of R&B and a lot of black music. Okay. Really?
1: See, that's what I was going to wonder. What? So that that's what what the radio music was, was mostly like R&B and stuff
4: like that? Like well, more... I mean,
2: actually, the majority was uh, was like, again, Italian stuff from the 50s. And the, actually, I, I, let me rephrase it uh that was like uh for me it was like mid to late 70s and um there was not uh you know mid 70s and stuff and again the majority was italian music from around that time mm-hmm. i'm like a big fan from italian music from the 50s and the 60s because it's stuff that is just like really incredibly written mm-hmm. uh, arranged and it's really very particular and a lot of soundtracks nowadays carry that kind of music yeah. you know uh but uh, the music, the regular Italian music from the seventies or the eighties, was definitely not up my, you know, was definitely not my cup of tea. However, they played a lot of, uh, um, uh, her Twin, and *Fire* and mm. that kind of stuff, that and you disco know, and era that type really of stuff. Of, yeah, well, no, 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 no. More, you know, before, before that, I'm talking oh, about God. like 1974 and no, 1975. So there was, I guess, disco. I guess kicked in like what, 78? Yeah, 70, a little bit 90, after that. Yeah, oh, the time, Yeah. 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 And, um, so I kind of like, uh, I, to be honest with you, without me knowing what he was or what the difference was, I liked that kind of stuff when he was coming up on the radio more than the other stuff. I couldn't really say, Oh, it's this guy. It was that guy. I only remember one name back then. It was just Elvis Presley. Mm. And, and I remember that I was listening to the radio when they announced that he died. It was like 1977 or something like that. Um, but for some reason, I, I don't know if it was the English sound of the words, the beat, everything. It's just that was calling for my attention more than the other stuff. I would say that the first two big, I mean, even though uh, the first two records, singles, you know, the 45s that my mom gave uh, gave me as a present were Beatles, Obladi, Oblada and Rolling Stone Satisfaction.
1: Uh, your, mom was, your mom was on it, man. <laughs> yeah,
4: that's too good
2: I played. Good yeah, I play that stuff. I mean, like crazy. And again, as a kid, you I mean, you, you know, uh, you know mixed in like those and like uh, fairy tales <laughs> records and all that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> but uh, I, I, again, I like those kind of sounds. I would say the first two musicians that I really got drawn to, that really called my attention and they actually ended up in becoming a big part of, you know, what I'm doing now were, you know, my first love, I would say, Bob Marley,
4: mm-hmm.
2: of course, mm-hmm. by, by, you know... Uh, Absolutely, without any, any hesitation. And the other one was Carlos Santana. Mm-hmm. My mom used to like a lot Santana. I mean, there's stuff like Europa, you know, that kind of more, more Samba pati, those kind of like more um, kind of like love song kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that was the first act actually artist that was a guitar player. I mean, Bob Marley played guitar and everybody else played guitar, but Santana was actually the guitar player. Mm-hmm. You know, and everybody made really an emphasis of you know, making sure that people understood that that was a guitar player you know the, the main artist and all that so i guess on that department those two guys kind of like took care of it. and then uh, around that time something happened um we used to have a, a tv show in italy um uh, on saturday night and, and some of the shows that uh, you can find now are still on um, spanish channels like you know, univision or um, that kind of stuff, right? On Saturday, they have like those two, three hours shows going on, like mm-hmm. the whole evening with music guests, ballets, and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the same thing in Italy. And I still remember the the, the, the program was in black and white. They used to have a, a music show, a music guest every weekend. And that particular weekend, they ended up in having James Brown. Oh, oh yeah. James Brown with his band. And I found out later because the footage of that old performance is available on YouTube. I mean, I I keep on watching it to be honest with you. That's <laughs> pretty much the thing that changed my life. Uh, and I found out later that you know bass player was Bootsy Collins and all of that. Mm-hmm. So it was just like it's and I never seen anything like that. I mean, and it's not only what I saw, it's just the overall the beat, the way, I mean, even the crowd. But then stiff as they were, not expecting any of that, you know, as soon as they started playing, I mean, everybody was just like jumping on the seats. And I mean, that was something un- unseen yeah. uh, in Italy for that kind of stuff. And that really struck me. And I was always waiting to- for that guy to come back. You know, like, obviously there was a rotation of gas, so that yeah. didn't happen. And I was like four or five years old. But I remember, you know, like it was yesterday because it was such an in- an impact that, you know, it- it's it's always been there. And um, a few weeks later, it was Tina Turner, <laughs> wow. and uh, so it was like uh, you know I, I don't know. It was just uh, thinking about it. I mean, they were playing all the stuff that I liked, there, and I was you know not really conscious about it, but I guess uh, it did affect me.
1: Was when you uh, when you visually saw something like James Brown on that show? Did it? Was it so drastically different than the stuff that you were kind of growing up hearing that it just blew you away? Even at that young of an age.
2: Well, I would say uh, yes, but in a, in a very strange way. Meaning, um, one thing that was very popular in the 60s in Italy, and not and only in Italy, in Europe in general, uh, and in Latin America as well, that's something that happened between the mid-60s to the mid-to-late 70s, was to do a um, rendition of a famous song, a song that was happening right at that time, in the local language. Mm. So we ended up in having a lot of stuff from the 60s. I mean, songs like from Sharon um, Bono and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, Mamas and Papas all redone in Italian. Like they had versions in Spanish, like they had versions in really? French and all of that. So I used to listen to a lot of what we consider American music that was sung in Italian. And uh, so it's not that the music itself was, uh, you know, that different. It's just, you know, the way it was an approach that really shocked me, you know, when I saw it. Because, I mean, they didn't, I mean, the whole band didn't look like any, not because they were black, but, you know, and, and, and in Italy back then, it was not really a place where, I mean, probably, there was no there were no black people in mm-hmm. Italy back then. Uh, maybe some Americans, yeah, mm-hmm. of course, you know, to the military, but not really, I mean, it's not like now that there is a lot of immigration from North Africa mm-hmm. and from other parts of the world, you know, and the world is a little bit more you know, like a melting pot altogether. You yeah. know, Milan is just as, you know, it's as, as, as Paris and London and Madrid. It's just the same thing now. Mm-hmm. Back then it was not. So uh, I'm seeing these things. And these guys, they were like, the way they were moving, the way they're approaching the overall thing. And I still remember this dancer behind James Brown, like was like on, uh, almost like in cubes. And they had these like uh, 60s, almost like a, uh, uh austin uh, straight out of an austin power movie uh, <laughs> boots which i i don't know if they were white or something but they were like really light uh and this huge afro she was dancing like crazy and uh, that really kind of light up a curiosity in me and um it was just the old package it was not only the music itself it's just everything the if choreography, choreography, you want to call it mm-hmm. i mean then you see this guy just you know jumping around playing the piano just dancing breaking down just again then then he falls down and the other guy covers it with a with a cape I mean, it was like dude, i'm real man it's like you, know, you didn't know about uh, you know marvel um superheroes and then all of a sudden you're in the middle of the street and you meet the fantastic four and spider-man at once and you get like holy oh, you, know, you know it was the same yeah, kind of yeah. kind of reaction and that's what it was just like maybe like a passion okay it was not Nothing in terms of like I don't want to be a musician or anything like that. But it was just something that I really liked to listen. to. Obviously, then the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Queen, Let's Happening, and you know and Sabbath and ACDC, and all the old rock stuff. To fast forwarding till uh, I think 1983, uh, it was very a fashion thing to do uh, in in Italy or in France or everything just to send your kid for a couple of weeks during the summer to London or to some city in the UK as a guest in some family. Um, you know, you do like a kind of like a student, student exchange, exchange kind of student type of deal. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll take some English classes during the day. And then you live with the family. I mean, you have your room, uh, you know, boarding and all of that. Right. And, um, I ended up, uh, being obviously in London and a lot of friends of mine from Milan ended up in going there too. I mean, the majority, they were older than me. And, um, they ended up in dragging me one weekend at this famous concert uh, Castle Donington uh, and that particular edition saw as a headliner Whitesnake in the original lineup oh, yeah <laughs> yeah with, and I still remember with that David Coverdale uh, Cozy Powell Neil Murray uh, John Lord uh, Bernie and uh, Mickey Moody um, and obviously David Coverdale and it was fantastic and the co liner for the night was ZZ Top. Oh <laughs> man! <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it's funny because I mean, uh, when we ended up in playing with my band Supersonic Boost Machine, uh, mm, it was like three years ago. We were touring in Europe, and uh, we were in London, and uh, our guest for the tour was Billy Gibbons, and uh, and uh, I and the, the the president of our record company, Mascot Label Group, in in London. Uh, we were about to do a sound check there. At, we played at um, Shepherd Bush Empire, which was another thing crazy because uh, there is a big park in front of this avenue and this venue. And that's very, very close. I mean, not like, even a block away, close to where I used to live when I used to go there to study. No, okay. So, like 30 something years away. Yeah, I know. It was just like everything was crazy. And I was telling Billy, hey, you know what? You know when we're, ch- you know, he knows the story because I told him so many times. Which, but you know <laughs> now we're here, we're doing this thing, and you know that's, you know, and I saw you guys playing your first big, big, big European show, and it was crazy because they were playing with those uh, Dean guitars covered with feathers and all of that. Oh, yeah. And yeah, just like, and you know, I mean, and those were the, the, I guess the Eliminator years So mm-hmm. the whole show. It was just fantastic, and uh, and I told Bernie Marsden too, was the guy, uh, the president of our record company, told me, and we're doing the sound checks Hey, Fab. I got Bernie Marston with a guitar here, and he wants to know if he can come in. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> uh and he says, like, yeah, it's just, you know, you guys, you know, you guys been exchanging pleasantry overnight, but you never really met. That like, you we told him that if he wants to come to the night, he's, you know, label guest. I said, dude, bring him in. So it, you know, he arrived and we're just, you know, we hug and everything. It was like very emotional on my hand for, you know, um you know, for all these things. And yeah. We ended up in playing at the end of the night. he joined us uh, oh, wow. uh, with a couple of other artists that played, and it was just fantastic. Yeah, I
1: actually seen that video, man. It was unbelievable. Yeah, you didn't look like you were having any fun at all on that one, Fab, at all.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, the the thing the thing was like uh, when uh, uh, on that night at Castle Donington when White Snake. Uh, 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 one thing for everybody for the listeners that don't really have an experience of. Uh, attending uh, UK festivals <laughs> in the 80s <laughs> or like even in the 90s. I mean, the, the sky was covered with shit. Excuse my English, but exactly what that was. I mean, they would throw stuff and uh, jugs of, you know, anything, uh, food, stuff already chewed and feces. I'm not kidding. No I mean, it was kidding. Just like, and that was oh, about hundred and something thousand people. So it, just the sky was, you know, permanently <laughs> brown, uh, <laughs> In between artists and sometimes, unfortunately, um, when you know, with the early bands, some stuff made it, made it onto the stage as well. Um, <laughs> but it was kind of like a fight, almost feisty, you know. Those were the years where, you know, uh, like I was a rocker and I had my MC and I had long hair, but if you cross like a punk. Or a skinhead on the subway, you better run. Because yeah. they will go for your nuts. You know, so <laughs> it was just something that it was like a weird, a weird time. I remember that uh, they went on stage, they started to do the thing, and then they played this song, um, In a Love in the Heart of the City, Bobby Blue Bland, right? Mm. And when they played that song, I mean the whole vibe, the whole everything in that show just changed. Everybody chilled, and all of a sudden it was like a m like a hundred and thousand. Counting Kumbaya, everybody was holding <laughs> oh, hands. Wow, yeah, lighters. You know, back then we had the lighters. There was no cell phones, right? <laughs> yeah. So lighters and the whole thing, and everybody was singing. I was "Wow, this I, that really kind of like wow. If just one song can do this, holy cow!" So that's something was already kind of like coming up in my head. And uh, three months later, st- uh, in Milan as well, right before Christmas, I saw Queen on the first performance that they've ever done in Italy. And uh, that probably was, you know, if not the one of the top best five shows I've ever seen in my life.
1: Oh, I can imagine. And,
2: uh, and after, you know, fifth, the first 15 minutes with Freddie Mercury, it was like, dude, this is what I want to do. I mean, it's just, that's <laughs> it. I mean, and that's it. That's actually what it was.
1: At that point, were you already playing music? Were you a musician at this point? Were you playing um, guitar or bass? Or? Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, I was fairly uh, green, like, uh, you know, like, you know, apple tart green. Kind of <laughs> because I, was, I I spent uh, my junior high uh, with my aunt. She was raising me because my natural mother passed away when I was much younger. And obviously my father had his business and everything and he couldn't really attend me. So he sent me to spend the three years of junior high with my aunt a little bit outside Milan. And during that time, my schoolmates from the elementary school, it's like when they started to kind of like again guitars, drums, and, you know, just started, you know, learning how to play an instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could have learned how to play keyboards uh, in, in, um, with my aunt. My, my uncle was a, you know, great pianist and all of that. Uh, but, you know, back then it's just like, no, I want to play guitar. Play guitar, cool. piano. I mean, no, that's for all farts and all of that. And, you know, it's like either guitar or nothing. So it was nothing. And it was kind of like my bad. <laughs> um, but when I got back to Milan, everybody was already like a few years ahead of me. So obviously, uh, kind of like I joined the, the band of friends, but I was the one most behind um, to a point where they're already like like three guitar players. They told me, you know what, we already have three guitars. Uh, you're, the la- uh, you're the last guy with the guitar, and you suck. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I had like two two months on me uh, on guitar. I mean, not even mileage, you know, it's like steps. You know? yeah. And uh, and he um, you said, you, you should be playing bass. And I was like, what's bass? is <laughs> like, well, it's just like a guitar, but it's got four strings. I went, whoa, that's easier. Cool, let's do it. <laughs> you know? And so I trade in the guitar that I had uh, for this uh, Japanese version pre- pre- from the Precision Copy Uh, Or rip off, as you Mm -hmm. you might might prefer, and um, I guess that was a good call because within six months and stuff, I was playing with a bunch of other bands, and I kind of like I found my my way, you know. And um,
0: how old were you at this point?
2: I was sixteen, and that actually was my—I would say that celebrated basically one year of me started playing.
1: Hmm. So when you talked uh, originally about kind of maybe gravitating towards, uh, you talked about like earth, wind and fire, and then um, some of the feeling, the beat of that stuff. Do you think that possibly, you know, you were kind of intuitively ingrained to play the bass and be part of that backbeat? Because it seemed like a little bit of the stuff that you talked about that grabbed you when you were younger was just the the beat and the feeling of that kind of Backbone of the music.
2: Yeah, well, uh, prob- probably, I mean, uh, as you as as you know, I mean, Motown and and soul music have a different approach to the mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey you go now 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 of course now i'm displaying my daily job which is <laughs> producer mixer so this is like they had a completely different approach on uh, the production of the songs and especially the mix and um where the bass was actually the most predominant thing mm-hmm. uh even louder than drums It's just completely different than the rock mixes that then a few years later would come around with, you know, Zeppelin or even more than Zeppelin, you know, ACDCs and stuff like that. And without even know what exactly that instrument was or anything like that, I told you when they told me you should be playing bass, I did not know. I'm honest, you know, I said I had no idea what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought that they wanted me to kind of like, you know, squat and just play low, you know. <laughs> just like, just it, you know? Uh, so it's just, I think, it's um I guess those frequency really resonates well with me. I guess, and uh, you know, when there was a time to to bring them back out, and they started playing, I think it's just kind of like all of a sudden it makes sense. And don't forget the thing with Bob Marley, because again, the delivery that they had, the Whalers had, they had a, a a lot of bass that was almost like a techno in terms of the parts mm-hmm. the bass was playing it was super organic and you know super cool. But those were kind of like the blueprints for a lot of like dance music and techno music for later you know for 20-25 years later for you know djs and dance artists to play so obviously there was something very particular in 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 what the bass and its frequency and its range Mm -hmm. did to me and i think uh, it was a good combination so far i haven't found anything that you know gives me so much fun as uh playing bass i mean of Mm -hmm. course i love to produce and mix and all of that but if i have to perform that's my instrument yeah Mm
0: -hmm. Talking about bass, I have the song right down below, and I love that bass in that song—the mm-hmm. the tone and the, oh, the funkiness. You. And uh, matter of fact, it might be a good time to go ahead and listen. Let's to give some let's of give a words. listen, man. Let's uh, why don't we start with right down below? You want to tell our listeners anything about that song, Fab?
2: Yes, actually, that song is um, it's uh, the first single of my upcoming solo record. It's going to be uh, called Counterfeited Blues. It's a, it's a very urban song in terms of like, I mean, the whole record, the whole thematic and the video itself uh, uh, for whoever manages to to watch it. It's a very Los Angeles. Uh, I use the city of Los Angeles to kind of like talk about uh, the current status of our society. This is a very, I wouldn't say necessarily political record, but uh, maybe it is. It's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like my, my version of Tom Morello, I would say. Uh, and again it's not really politics written but it's very socially aware let's put it this way it's probably more it's better to say it like that and uh, this talks about uh, this song talks about uh, the need and uh, the the drive that every person that comes from really down below and the most uh, forgotten parts of towns like big towns around the world like Los Angeles which is the city in which I'm living in having that you know, even if they didn't try it before, kind of like the the drive and, uh, and the, the need to kind of like uh, better themselves and empower themselves and just kind of like uh, get out of, uh, you know, um, hard times and just kind of like trying to kinda of at least access or live like a decent life where you can kind of like uh, afford a roof over your head and, mm. you know, and to do something with your family and everything without having to. Just, you know, give away your lives with five part-time jobs and, and all of that. And um, the video itself, uh, there is a lot of things about homeless. I mean, the song itself uh, doesn't necessarily fully address the homeless um, situation in Los Angeles. But I think it was a very, very strong image for people to kind of like uh, to kind of like stop, look at it and then eventually start wondering mm-hmm. and asking questions about it so that's why it went down that way but uh, again it's a positive song So the message is very positive uh, I think it's very actual because it uh, reflects a lot of uh, what's going on uh, in our country and all in our country and um, again even though it's sad and even though there's everything that you might see in the video it's, there's a, it's a song of hope there's a message okay. uh, of hope in the end
0: let's listen to a little bit of let's right do it. down below <laughs> muito 건sel era
3: では machine looking back. has yeah. got
1: that you, you uh spoke to the the bass lines to the old bob marley and the whaler song man that is such a tr- throwback tribute to some of that reggae music you used to love because that just holds it down yeah
0: and and do you produce and engineer your own solo projects too
2: yes actually i uh, that's always been my my passion since i came to the states obviously uh, play, you know, obviously have a band and performing and stuff like that, but the production part of the the work or part of the creation project has always been something very dear to me. And, you know, I ended up in producing and, and play with, you know, a lot of my, I would say, uh, inspirations, a lot of the artists that I grew up listening to, not Bob Marley, okay? No. <laughs> Uh, and, um, yeah, it's something that it's just for me, it's, uh, it's together. I don't know. It's a lot of people are telling me that they they think it's difficult sometimes when you have to produce your own records and everything, but since I never, it's not that I started off as an artist and then I decided, oh, I want to produce my own record. Sure. I started off as a, as an artist, but at the same time I was producing other people. We might get to player in New York in our band. We had a house band and we were cutting demos and stuff for other local bands. And that's how the whole thing, you know, got, you know, pushed forward. And uh, to be honest with you, it just became part of my DNA. I cannot really, con- you know, do one thing or another. I mean, it's not that I cannot go to a, to do a section as a bass player and, and I have to necessarily produce it. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. I have a lot of friends that are, and colleagues that are producers and stuff, and I'm working them all the time. But, you know, in terms of like, uh, it's just an overall thing, a, an overall approach. You know, the, the soundscape, the type of sounds, type of tones, arrangements, and, uh, obviously that being my instruments and I, I don't know, just everything is called like, uh, it's, it's connected. I don't kind of like really discern it, you know, it's, mm. I don't know, it's just part of the, the full package.
0: Well, mm. Other than the bass we already talked about and the, uh, the great message of that song, uh, this song in particular, but a lot of your music, I love the sound of the background vocals.
1: Oh my gosh, but those came, kids, they come in listening. so... Oh. They kill it. I yeah. love, yeah, I agree with you 100%. That just, it adds this, it sent a chill up in my spine the first time I heard it. I was like, whoa,
4: where's that? Yeah, go? yeah.
1: It's all, it's, it's, it's the perfect, like your ear you heard the perfect thing there. And that song, you knew that that, that needed to be there. And it's like your production ear on that was perfect. It's like, man,
2: perfect. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, funny enough, I kept it in the house because the ladies singing there are my wife's and my daughter. <laughs> Is that no kidding. kidding. Yes, actually, oh, man. Um, my, my daughter is 20 and she study obviously, all her stuff. And, you know, her career is more like in movies and stuff like that. She's an actress, but uh, she's been singing since she was nine. And she did a lot of session with me and with her mom and, uh, you know, with other friends of ours and other clients and everything. So she's been around microphones in the studio since she was like two, three. Uh, And so for her, it's normal. My wife is a singer from forever. She had her own band in Venezuela. And when she came to the United States, she started immediately to work with some great producer like Humberto de Tica and uh, David Foster she was doing vocal wow. coaching and you know spanish stuff for selling Dion for Faith Hill and all these people so she's like a monster when it comes down to BBs and arrangements and stuff mm-hmm. like that and they are part actually of my main band supersonic blues machine okay uh, there is a there is a component and um, that's how uh, that's how we started and uh, when we did this record uh, especially this song I Played for her, uh, played for, for them um, Babylon by Bus, uh, which was one of the records that I consumed when I was a teenager. Uh, it's a famous live uh, of Bob Marley and the Wailers. And, and I love the way Rita Marley and uh, uh, the other two singers in the band, actually they were all uh, related, were creating that sound because they sounded like there was 15 people, almost like, yes. a, like, a, almost like a, an African gospel. I don't know how to explain it. It was like, we're more Caribbean, but we're more tribal, but kind of like, almost like African, but in a gospel kind of way. And that, the thing that always uh, uh, amazed me and and really lured me into the rag, I think beside the actual bass and the feel, it's just those focus like that. And I think we were able to do, you know, thanks again to my ladies, we were able to do a, a good thing. Oh, yeah. At least, uh, I know it was like, uh, it's beautiful, you know, Definitely inspired by the greatest uh, from that genre, but I think we kind of like uh, paid a good tribute to
1: it. And absolutely, and to 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 go for something, to shoot for something that lofty, and and to try to get that sound, and to pay that close of a tribute to it, man, that's just phenomenal. It, It absolutely accents the the song and the production of that song. It's killer. It's Kudos Thank to you. the Thank
0: kudos so much to the Grassy family. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> very much. So, so what were? Uh, yeah, they were. It might be too complicated to even get into, but but what was your chain, uh, your your bass running through to get that that sound there?
2: Oh, I'm glad that you noticed. Um, I generally use. I mean, I have a bunch of different instruments, but uh, my main instruments are. Um, there is an Italian luthier. Uh, it's a boutique. Uh, it's a boutique store. Uh, it's called Mane, Manne. M A N N E. And he makes these these incredible basses. I've been playing them for a long time. And we have this model that is called Malibu, which is actually kind of like my version of a jazz bass because mm-hmm. it's a 24 frets instead of being a 22. Okay. Um, active and stuff like that. But it's set up and built and to look like one of those old instruments. So I played that. And also I played the new series SR from Ibanez. Um, it's a incredibly designed instruments, And... These two, these two instruments by itself, uh, they have a very mm, particular sound on their own. However, I think ninety uh, percent of the sound that you know a musician makes is out of his hands. It's mm-hmm. not ready yep. the instruments. I can give my basses to another bass player, which I do sometimes. I have plenty of friends of mine, and when they play it, they don't sound at all like me. They mm-hmm. sound like them. So there you go, you know, and, um, that sound like shit. The, the, the the thing is though, that both these, these bases, uh, by itself, they have a very, uh, particular kind of sound. Uh, but I would say it's fairly present, right? Mm -hmm. Um, because, um, I guess it's the type of sound that I always like, both with Supersonic or even my other songs. Kind of like a little distorted, uh, but I do a lot of popping and fun, you know, and pulling and all that kind of stuff. So you need to have some sort of like clarity, clarity on the tone. However, um, for this one, I remember that kind of like almost like muted, like almost like a mm. top rolled off completely of those records when they were playing out of uh, you know cars driving by you always do mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. and i wanted to create that not only with uh, by rolling off the the top so um my actual studio chain is uh, my pedal board um going into a special preamp the mark base uh, it's the company of amplification based amplification that i endorse mm-hmm. from 20 years and incredible instrument for me are you know my favorite um They have this uh, studio model, which is like a multi line uh, preamp that you can run your bass through it. You don't have to uh, mic it, record it, you know, with microphones or amplify it. Mm -hmm. It, It's just set up exactly to go straight into the recorder or into the board. mm -hmm. Right. So I was using that and I ended up in in doing a split on the DI and uh, I run a second channel. I mean, so basically I had the, 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 the module sound, I mean, you know, with all the EQs and the, the whatever, you know, the, the, the distortions and all of that. The other one, which was the DI, because this preamp gives you two different uh, outputs. And uh, the DI was split into another device of mar- that MarkBase makes that is called um, multi-amp. Multi-amp, uh, probably uh, some of the people that are listening to us right now, it was more like guitar player Mm -hmm. uh, that are hip to the new things or what's going on right now are probably familiar with the Camper. Camper, it's a a simulator. uh, uh, It's a digital simulator of other amps. So basically you have a, a, a huge park of options and sounds into a machine with immediate recall. It's all digital and if five or six years ago, all that would have sound kind of like dubious to mm-hmm. me. I mean, I would have not necessarily gone that way, even with guitars.
1: You're talking about like the uh, head rush and, and the, the helix cam- and the, things like the that. The camper or the DI, the, the yeah, did simulation man. thing, right? It's the amazing the sounds they create these days.
2: Today, the technology is just completely, it's just so insane. That you, I mean, I challenge everyone to, you know... To find the difference mm-hmm. and uh, so basically i i created a preset there's a kind of like a, a low high pass filter where only everything under 200 hertz will go in and uh, they then that kind of like rumble you know mm-hmm. uh, to sound like almost like an old svt but with uh, with a room i mean the, the main thing is there is a room in there and mm-hmm. funny enough all those uh, recordings whether it was Bob Marley or Peter Tosh, they were all recorded live, generally at the Compass Point, Nassau, a lot of Bob's records were done there. Mm. And um, by looking at documentary, documentaries and stuff later, I realized that, you know, everybody was playing together and at the bass, for some reason, it was just okay. like facing these huge holes and they had a the natural reverb. And that's why it's so smooth. I mean, maybe if you listen to it by yourself, Uh, you can tell there is or even stuff, but within the track, not really, but it gives it that kind of like glow. As my mastering engineer, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, Pete Dole says like, hey man, the real estate that your bass is taking out on that track is just like, (laughs) it shouldn't be legal because it takes it much, but it's very musical. It doesn't interfere. So, I mean, you cannot use that kind of stuff in every song mm-hmm. but um kind of like i like to go there sometimes and do those things and you know really really happy with the song. that bass thank you
0: that bass hooks you into that song right away oh yeah so tell us yeah. a little bit about you know your solo project and uh Soul garage experience
2: okay so garage experience is um basically it's my solo band I mean, obviously, I'm not solo. I mean, I'm not playing alone. <laughs> a bunch <laughs> of friends and uh, and, and colleagues uh, that are coming in. But I kind of like uh, it's something that was always there. To be honest with you, a lot of these songs have been there for a while. Uh, not right down below. Right down below is a COVID song actually, mm-hmm. and it was uh, was the last song that I wrote for this record. You know, um, and it was done in March, April. You know, right when we were locked down, and I did another house. I brought home some of the recording the other day to the studio. And I was able to do a bunch of things yeah. here. The recording uh, of uh, the, the, the overall thing is, uh, you know, it's kind of like it went on for, for, for a long time, meaning a lot of the songs or the ideas of these songs were in there for, for a long time. However, um, since uh, um, I would say the majority writer and the producer for my other more famous band, Supersonic Blues Machine. Generally, the way I work with that is like whenever we have, a you know, a record coming out or anything like that, I start immediately to to write and document uh, songs. Start off with my iPhone and then, you know, they found their way into Pro Tools. Uh, not necessarily uh, because we have to do a record. I mean, it's just a process. It always starts. And I know when I starts and I have like uh, those two or three ideas already in that a record is about to come up with. Mm. You know It's kind of like uh, is the is the natural way For me to detect that Yeah And um, So Those songs were already there When uh, In uh, 1980 No Sorry two I'm just losing track right? <laughs> 2018 Our uh, Guitar player and singer In Supersonic um, Lance Lopez Who um, was the guitar player And singer That was featured On the first two records We parted Parted band with him You know One of the most possible, incredible guitar player, a blues guitar players I've ever worked with, uh, and a great singer as well. You um, had to deal with a bunch of different things and, uh, you know, wish them, you know, great luck. Mm-hmm. I ended up and actually got him a deal and I produced his record, uh, one, his latest solo record. So he released mm-hmm. this record and we decided to go separate ways. And Chris Barras took over. Now, Chris, compared to Lance, is just a completely different history. Because Lance was born in, um, not Lafayette, maybe uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, somewhere in Louisiana, but uh, close to Texas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he always played, I mean, he played rock. I mean, he, he knew, I mean, when we talk Van Halen or ACDC or stuff like that, he knew what's going on and he could play that stuff. But he also grew up playing the Chitling Circuit with oh, Bobby okay. Bland and all these people since he was 14. Wow. <laughs> and then Buddy Miles and all of it. So uh, him, because of he was exposed to me, I guess, because it was part of my DNA, we shared that super, super deep passion for black music. Mm-hmm. Not that Kenny Aronoff, our drummer, does not like that. I mean, he played with, from Baby King to everybody. I mean, and it's he's a fantastic drummer for that kind of stuff. But We Were, for us, was like a little bit more of a, uh, I don't know more, more, more kind of like almost like a, a religion kind of attachment to that kind of music mm-hmm. and Chris is an incredible guitar player singer is from Devon UK our record company um, hooked me up with him you know he just came out to do a conversation and we ended up in you know uh, hiring him immediately it comes from a different background it comes from sure big blues influence but the British blues so you're talking about Gary Moore, uh, Rory Gallagher, and then obviously Zeppelin, and mm. you know I, all the big bands from the six, from the seventies. So uh, his approach to blues, it's probably more rock blues than you know, funk and soul, which is mine because I'm no soul. I am not a blues man by any means. You know, mm. I mean, I play blues uh, even when we go out on tour and we have our guests with Supersonic guys with like uh, Joe Louis Walker or Eric Gales or Shamika Copeland or Robin Ford, one of those cats, these guys are playing blues for real. I'm just, you know, Mm -hmm. supporting them with a a humble blues tribute. You know, let's put it this way. I do not have, I didn't grow up with that kind of culture around me, Uh, you know? And what I learned, it was just like out of passion, but you know, I kind of, I miss, I, I miss kind of like the the early years if you know what I mean
1: you know how much did Ed and Chris change your all's sound
2: Um, it didn't actually to be honest with you because again most of the songs were more like again coming from me but we had a bunch of different selections of, uh, of pieces of music there Mm. that could have been another two or three Supersonic Blues Machine records but with them we ended up in picking up more of the rocking thing like mm. we have a new Supersonic Blues Machine record that is going to come out this year All right. I can I do not know the date yet I can tell that it's probably towards the summer but obviously we have some music coming up earlier and uh, you, you'll hear it once it's out there I mean it's still like Supersonic Blues Machine there is always our special groups Kenny and I but there is more UK to it, there is okay. more. There is more Zeppelin. There is more Pink Floyd. Um, there is more that kind of sound, and almost like even British R and B. At some point, it's huh. amazing. I was just one person, and then again, not because we wanted to go there. You know, it's just that Chris goes behind his microphone uh, and he's like, and he does his thing. And in the beginning, when he came to Los Angeles to adi- to, to to audition with us, he was asking me, "Hey, man, what should I learn and everything?" Because I know all these songs, and I'm a big fan of the band and everything. But you well, Whatever you learn, make sure that you don't do lanes. Just come here and do Chris. Mm. And, you know, that was for me, that for us was very, very important. Now, with Chris coming in and doing that, I kind of like felt more comfortable in sharing only half of the drive worth of songs because um, all the other stuff, which is the stuff that you're hearing now with the Soul Garage experience, uh, kind of like it was turning the whole thing into a supersonic uh, fabs machine. You know, it was yeah. like, you know, again, I, I was the only one then in the band that was like really that attached to Salomon Burke and Leon Russell and Freddie King and all the Kings and all of that. And, uh, you know, them, it's, yeah, sure. They, they all love the blues and they know very well. And they probably played with more blues players than myself, but I don't know. For them, it's, a, I guess uh, they have a different uh, influence in their blues. For me, it was coming more from that scene. So, All those songs, kind of like uh, seeing them all listed into the sub-menu of my drive, I'm like, wow, this is a full record. (laughs) Actually, it's almost two records. Well, you know what? Maybe it's time for me to do it. And around um, that time, I mean, a couple of years ago, three years ago, I started a a side uh, project with Stephen Perkins, a drummer. Fantastic drummer uh, from Jane's Addictions and Porno for Pyres, Nine Inch Nails. I mean, great, great experience. And it's a fantastic dude. One of the most creative drummers that I know. Him and the guitar and the keyboard player um, from Supersonic Blues Machine, a dear friend of mine, is actually, it's a music royalty, Alex Ellis Jr. is um, the musical director for Post Alley Soul Station, but he's also musical director for Christina Aguilera, for Pink and Natalie Cole and stuff and Um. uh, Whitney Houston. So for him too, again, he's another Italian guy from Rome. I mean, he came here when he was 17 and never left. Graduate with uh, cum laude at Berkeley. And, you know, so he's got that, again, funk and soul stuff like that. So us playing together during some shows of Supersonic and in one show specifically where Stephen Perkins had to sub for Kenny Aronoff. Um, Robin Ford was playing with us and at the end of the night he tells me hey man I'm so used to, crap, to you and Kenny playing together you guys got a great groove and everything but you know with Perkins and with Alex when the three of you guys playing together you sound like the Doors but funky you should consider doing something you know <laughs> wow You know, so I never really thought like that and so we started to kind of like we put together something and we started to rearrange songs that we loved from the 60s the 70s the 80s but trying to make it sound more like a kind of like a California funk, California late 60s, kind of like Summer of Love type of thing, Mm -hmm. you know, to kind of like go there. And we had so much fun doing it. I mean, we had a great band. And we saw the reaction of the crowd. I mean, people were losing their shit. (laughs) I mean, they were, like, really going crazy.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, And it was not only musician. Even though there was a lot of jamming and all of that, it was not, like, the, you know, the guitar player crowd or, you know, anything. It was, like, all kinds of people and everybody was dancing and everything. So I'm like, hmm. And that kind of, like, helped me to kind of, like, uh, put in all the missing parts of... uh, Soul Garage experience And that's pretty much How we started uh, Obviously Perkins Is my I mean Again It's my solo band So there's going to be A bunch of different musicians That will You know Come around And you know Only maybe do some shows And then leave Or whatever it is But uh, The the nucleus The main nucleus It's uh, Stephen Perkins Myself Alex uh, uh, This incredible guitar player From Los Angeles There they Is phenomenal. I know this kid since he was 16. For me, He's the hardest thing ever out of Los Angeles for the last 20 years at least. And um, he's the guy that plays guitar on, right down below. Because he's got this kind of like, I don't know, it's like a, if, if Steve Vai will play blues. I don't know how to explain it. It's just this guy. <laughs> he's on, his own uh, monster. And uh, another friend of mine, Diamond Mix, who's a great singer, who's a finalist for both American Idol and uh, Americans Got Talent. Uh, I call him the Queen of Soul because he's Insane, it just you know, <laughs> fantastic vocalist. Um, we're gonna have a couple of other singles before the full record gets released, and uh, the, the next stuff uh, is gonna are going to be songs where Diamond sings, uh, and you'll hear. I mean, you'll definitely gonna you'll understand what I'm talking about.
0: So Fab, why don't we listen to one more Soul Garage Experience song, a little bit of one more, and then we'll have you talk to us a little bit about your charity project.
2: Oh sure. Uh, well, I guess uh, what you're gonna be listening to now is um, "I'd Rather Be Wrong." This is uh, the latest single uh, from uh, the upcoming "Counterfeited Blues." It was released right before Christmas, but we didn't really start pushing because actually we ended up in having to deal with a charity project that we're gonna talk later. Uh, so basically, uh, it's like this song just came out like a week ago, and uh, we're we're pushing it right now. I really hope that you know. You guys and your listeners uh, enjoy it. This is actually a song that it's like uh, me giving kind of me and Perkins and everyone because um, all the guys in, in uh, songwriter experience we're all fathers. I mean, at least Alex, myself, Perkins, and everything. And all our kids are musicians or actors. Oh, cool! For us, being doing it for this long and having to endure and go through all the crap becomes, you know, basically attached. Uh, to to this industry uh, or to the label of a musician it's kind of like it's, it, it don't really kind of like uh, preach anything but you're just trying to kind of like give them the best uh, you know suggestions that you can and that's basically what the song is about you
4: know ho 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 do, 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 ho ho
1: Where everything sits in that mix on that one
0: yeah that's uh that's another thing that stood out to me about your uh your mixing and engineering you you take full advantage of the stereo field oh
2: well that's a that's a george martin lesson mm. i guess uh, nobody like the Beatles kind of like really showed the world what you can do when you have a stereo recording mm-hmm. um at least in in terms of you know our, our arrival you know and uh, I always like the fact of being able to have some things on one side and some things on the other side you know it's uh, kind of like uh, gets rid of the clutter
0: yeah but it's still it's uh, i think i think we all try to do that but when you have the ability to make the listener feel like they're seeing where that instrument's sitting on the stage and how many mm-hmm. feet away this other instrument is and everybody has their own little spot that's not, just,
1: that's not easy to do and when you can close your eyes and go yep the bass is on the left side right there right? I, yep not all the way to the left just a little bit right about just that 48 little bit degrees. in front of the drums. Yeah, and man. it's just something that sits so well.
0: Got that well. crash symbol over on the right a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I'm,
2: I'm glad that you guys are noticing that because um, obviously it's not only the song, but it's the work, you know, the production mm-hmm. work. But uh, as I said, even though uh, this lesson, this is a Beatles lesson, you know, um, I kind of like never really realized the importance of the panning of the instruments until I've analytically listen to Van Halen one, Mm. Ted Templeman that produced the first record. I mean, Eddie had a sound that there was just like at that time when, you know, everybody else was playing, you know, it was like half crunch and everything. And don't get me wrong. I love the sounds, you know, from, you know, Angus Young to Jeff Beck to, you know, Billy Gibbons and everybody. But, uh, you know, they all somehow kind of like belong together. Eddie came around <laughs> and that sound was just like, holy cow, what mm-hmm. the hell is that? Mm-hmm. And um, and Ten Templeman kind of like managed to keep them on one side only. Because if you listen to the early Van Halen record, the bass is on one side and the guitar is on the other. Yeah. And the drums and the vocals are in the middle, which is like very unorthodox thing to do, especially with the bass. And it kind of like, I never really realized that until I started to listen to those records with the headphones. Otherwise, I mean, you go, well, you know, with friends, you crank it up. I mean, it's just the room fills up with the sound that you don't really kind of like analyze or you got more guitar on one side than the other one. And then I started to kind of like going back and listen to other records, you know, and we went back again to 60 stuff and everything, which for me were the best made record ever, Mm -hmm. especially with the Beatles stuff. And it's there. So it's something that I always trying to do, you know, and it's not easy but it's not difficult to, I mean, obviously it gets, it gets complicated when you start to add, you know, more instruments. But then again, um, if if you're careful when you record and, um, and everybody knows, you know, what they're doing and when they're playing for the song and not just showing off, uh, then they don't play on top of each other. And uh, at that point you can enjoy that kind of, you know mixing and panning type of uh, settings. That's
0: know? a good lesson for a lot of musicians. Yeah, oh, huge. <laughs> <laughs> huge. Yeah, so tell us, uh, tell us about our charity project or your charity project before we have to end here.
2: Okay, and thank you. Sure, and thank you for bringing it up. I mean, I'm personally, I'm always involved with charity. If you guys, I mean, you and the listeners, uh, wants to go and take a peek at uh, my uh, webpage FabrizioGrossi.com which is also called SoulGarageExperience.com uh, you can find you know these informations about the records and blah 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 and all of that but you also find links uh, with some nonprofits that I associate with. One is a Guitar for Vets and the other one is Upward uh, uh, Bound House here in Los Angeles which is a um, a company that help uh, families that um, ended up uh, losing their home and they help them with, uh, you know, with apartments, with housing and and basically to get their feet back together. And obviously Guitar for Vets, uh, we we collect instruments and we raise money to give music therapy to veterans that are affected by PSTD. Uh, and these uh, therapies are so um effective that actually right now uh the guitar licenses are even given at DA's hospitals and facilities oh, awesome. so we're really happy about that and and this is like my choice with that it's not because I'm you know pro war or anything like that actually quite the opposite, like I said from the beginning i'm you know I'm coming from where Tom Morello comes from, you know, if mm. I needed if I really wanted to go there, but mm. the sacrifice that these people uh, and these fellow Americans did, and the sufferings that it's brought to them, you know, because of the condition. And these these things are real, and I do not like when people are getting taken advantage. And I think somebody needs to do something for it. And um, I'm a very very loud uh, ambassador for the cause. So. These two, these two charities are always there for me. You know, even part of the Profits of Soul Garage experience are going to them. But uh, right before Christmas, um, a dear friend of mine and collaborator, uh, a director, movie director from New York, uh, Scott Rosenbaum, told me about uh, a documentary uh, called Life and Larry Brown. Well, I, I was aware, obviously, of the documentary because the gentleman, Larry Brown, is, uh, ended up playing one song uh, with the ARP uh, from Supersonic Blues Machine, and two years ago we released a single called "Right Now," and he was playing on that track. Oh, cool. um, I got to meet uh, Larry, um, and it's a very, very, very sad story. Larry was born in Foresight, Georgia, uh, sixty-six years, sixty-seven years ago. Uh, Larry passed away in March. Uh, it was one of the earliest victims of COVID in New York. Um, Larry um, was used as a uh, living target when he was a little kid because down there kkk was running supreme um it was uh you know the abuses that he, he received when he was a young kid and and a teenager was just you know and you could it's that stuff that you cannot make mm. up mm-hmm. and uh, when they ended up in you know he started his adult work uh, career and uh, unfortunately in an accident that i've it's somehow related to all these other abuses and the way he's been brought up and the way, you know, people were getting treated back then. Uh, he got into an altercation with his um, boss and they pushed each other and he pushed him and boss slipped, uh, fell, banged his head and died. Normally, something like that would be a mis- you know, uh, manslaughter, obviously. He was a black guy. And and you're talking about uh, 1970-something. So they went for, you know, first-degree murder. And he was in without possibility of parole. Um, He was in jail. He found, I guess, his goal. Uh, He learned how to play guitar, how to play uh, harmonica. And uh, he became quite of a positive person. You know, it's just like everybody wanted to have him around. And he did a lot of uh, um, motivational speeches. And this is a guy that, you know, didn't even finish, you know, high school you know so it's not that you know you're getting like an Hillary Clinton talking to bankers you're talking about somebody that is speaking out of his experience uh and the hardship of his life to try to kind of like give given uh, a positive uh, message and spin to a bunch of young people that were already populating in jail basically uh the documentary of this um, this documentary life of Larry Brown which is basically Larry telling his own story and Majestically directed by Scott is a very personal, and it's a short movie because it's like forty minutes, right? We found out right a week before Christmas, but like two weeks before Christmas, that um, it was getting considered by the Academy for an Oscar. Wow! I guess for everything that it's happening, you know, in the last few years, and uh, I get they they read the story, they saw the movie, they really kind of like got attached to the topic, and um, they're starting to they they started to kind of like talk to. They're voting um, members and kind of like do publicity to the movie. And I was talking to Scott and uh, he said, you know what? I, he always said he wanted to do something with Larry's and everything. I think a, we, we definitely owe it to him. Let me see. I mean, I know that we're very close to Christmas and all of that. So everybody was, you know, and plus with the pandemic, it's going to be crazy. But let me see what I can do. I'm going to call a couple of cats. I want to see if they want to help me. We can use one of Larry's songs and let's do that, you know, just to, you know, to trail the movie. And, you know, but with, uh, you know, with a good spin, meaning um, right because of the, uh, the documentary, Scott ended up in making a deal with uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Oh, wow. And um, basically everything that is going to be um, raised with uh, the music that we just put together uh, Is going to be hundred percent. Is going to go to the poverty law center under the name, you know, under Larry Brown's account for just we're just trying to make sure that Larry's stories just stays Larry's stories only and it doesn't uh, get repeated, you know, uh, for the oh, next yeah. uh, nice. for the next generations. And um, basically, I started making phone calls and send out emails, uh, and you know, a bunch of people jump on it. Unfortunately, because of the timing, we couldn't had everyone that I contacted because otherwise this thing would have been you know, really like a, a we are the world type of thing from <laughs> the amount of a sympathy that we got. However, uh, we're like so lucky and blessed to be able to get uh, Ty Taylor from uh, um, Vintage Trouble, Betty Smith, um, King Solomon Hicks and then oh, Dragon wow. Great from Living Color and then you know my two <laughs> loving drummers Kenny Aronoff that played drums on this track and Stephen Perkins that played uh, percussions I got Gary Allegretto, my two ladies again and we ended up in I, I took like one of these Larry songs a very particular one called Judgment Day where it talks about um him wanting to reunite with his mom because his mom passed away when he was in jail, and you know, he didn't even know where she was buried after until probably you know almost like six months after he was released. And, um, we'll turn it into this piece that you guys have there and that I really, you know, will like I really hope uh, you and, and and the listeners are gonna like it's called Judgment Day, and uh, again, based on uh, the original Larry Brown story, Judgment Day, uh, we created these. Uh, I don't even know. It's kind of like a gospel R&B, uh, funk soul thing. But it's just, I guess, it was just a good song. You know, that's the way we like to see it. It's just, about, there's a lot of love coming out of that. And um, I'm still shocked that we were able to pull something that sounds like so um, together and so organic, you know, even a distance. Because actually, other than myself and, and my ladies and Kenny Aronoff that is like next door in my studio, kind of like we recorded via Zoom and exchanging files online. So That's awesome. it doesn't really sound like that, the final result. And I'm really, really, really happy. And we we'll are be getting a lot of great reviews and support. So let's see what we can do.
0: Here it is, judgment day. on these tunes.
1: Man, that's a
2: killer one. <laughs> I love that. We're trying.
4: We're trying.
2: We're trying.
0: <laughs> for our listeners that aren't already following, you mentioned a couple of websites, but what's the best way for people to stay stay close to you and, and Supersonic Blues Machine and Soul Garage experience?
2: Okay, well, first, I think it's just like the, the, the simplest step is to go for both bands to their... Uh, websites. So supersonicbluesmachine.com and fabriziograssi.com or com. Fabriziograssi Soul Garage Experience are the same site, you know. Okay. Double okay. landing, we call it. Okay. Uh, and if you go there, from there on, you can go to the YouTubes and watch the videos. You can go to Spotify and listen to the music and just read, uh, you know, lyrics and bios and informations about uh, what we're doing. So that uh, by far it's by far the best. Obviously, we're on all platforms, you know, Instagram and Twitter and you know, Facebook and you know, and whatnot and and, and all the other ones. Uh, done, uh, every day is gonna new. <laughs> new there's a new social machine so I'm, I'm kind of like losing you know losing count <laughs> yeah. and as far as judgment day if any uh, of the listeners uh wants to support the the initiative please the main thing is just guys just go on on um, facebook life and larry brown uh you can find the page like it follow it same thing on instagram go to youtube uh judgment day life and mary brown uh listen to the song watch the video just give us a likes drop a comment and you know the more you play it the more we race. so awesome. you know <laughs> now it's in your hands
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay well we really appreciate you joining us tonight it's been uh, it's been great talking to you and, and getting to know you better and we're gonna play i never thought that you'd loved me to go out uh-huh. here do you want to share anything about that one
2: Yes, actually, um, that's uh, it's another song that is out. That's actually it's the B side of the first single of "Right Down Below," and um, that song is actually it's a political song, but in a particular way. Meaning, uh, it doesn't really matter if you're left, right, uh, up, down, you know, sideways. Uh, politicians are a bunch of liars no matter what, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and actually the songs is like uh, it's it, it might sound that i'm talking to like a next lover or girlfriend or anything like that but it's actually in the reality you're talking about a bunch of all these bozos that are telling you whatever they feel that they need to tell you to just keep you know to keep in you know fullness or just you know to abuse uh, you know, the power that they have and just squander the money that they raise or, you know, instead of taking care of the people. And uh, again, this is, uh, like I said, it's political because the idea is political, but it's not like, oh, it's like, oh, these guys, this is against the other guys. Absolutely no. It's like at the end of the day, we all collectively, this is my belief, and a lot of my musicians too, that we're all the same, to be honest with you. The complaints that we have, uh, we're all the same. If we just stop the madness for a second and talk to each other, we find that we will have Way more things in common, absolutely, than not what we have in disagreement. And if we unite, maybe you need to get in
0: politics, Fab.
2: (laughs) You know what? I, I, you know, I thought about it a few times. Uh, My wife is not really happy about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I don't blame her. (laughs) Well,
2: thanks again. It's been it's been great. (laughs) Thank you, It's been
1: amazing, man.
2: Thank you guys for having me. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, thank you for what you're doing, and you know, just to support artists and all of that. And to everybody at home, uh, do it, be good to each other. We only have this life. We only have this planet. And if you want to keep in touch with us and see what's going on, SoulGarageExperience.com, uh, SupersonicBluesMachine.com, and uh, wish everybody a great 2021, in a fantastic year, and lots of love and good things.
1: Super. Awesome. Thank you, Bab.